Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. You may be able to hear in my voice the reason why I have not put up a podcast in the last week, which is basically that immediately after Edinburgh, my voice disappeared and uh, I was incapable of doing much, let alone putting out a podcast and let alone recording a podcast. So that's why I, this week's episode is with John Luke Roberts, who is a brilliant uh, mind and an excellent performer. We spoke at End of the Road Festival near Salisbury about creative partnerships, romantic partnerships, uh, absurdism and the place of mainstream comedy. And uh, I think it was a really interesting chat. He's a very thoughtful chap. I've been wanting to have him on the podcast for a while, so I was very glad to have him on. There's other news. The last episode of the trilogy is now out on the ABC podcasting uh, platform or whatever you listen to your podcasts on. If you search the Alice Fraser trilogy, it is out in full as I wanted it to be at first. So my original plan was to put them all out as one big chunk uh, because that was how I... I mean, that was the reason for performing them back-to-back as one three-hour show because I wanted them to be listened to as one three-hour show. It is now out in six episodes and I think there will be some interstitial and additional material as well um, that I put together with Bryce, my producer. I'll have to check that with Tom Wright. I've also hit uh, 10,000 Twitter followers, which is either a lot or not a lot, depending on who you are, but to me it feels like a lot. It feels like a milestone of some sort got to take milestones where you can get them in this industry. There are no promotions and very few awards. So I am at that point. I'm, I'm happy with that. That's a small celebration for me. Uh, not that Twitter is necessarily a great place. It's astonishing to see how quickly things can descend into rage, even from people who ought to be, maybe especially from people who ought to be agreeing. Furious agreement on the large principles with some real persnickety hassling about things like tone or phrasing or whether somebody should have mentioned something you know what I mean this is why I haven't done a podcast because I'm still not a hundred percent well it feels like a terrible cliche to get sick after Edinburgh Uh, and there are sort of two options after Edinburgh which is either you look after yourself or you forge forward I always think of it like that scene in a in a um space movie, space adventure type movie where somebody has to redeem their evil deed by sacrificing themselves by charging into some sort of radioactive flame in order to pull a lever that could have been put somewhere better. Um, And I tend to choose that one. Uh, So I left Edinburgh and went directly into the Highlands with my dad to walk 30 kilometres a day uh, for two days and then flew back to, uh, to London Uh, to do a gig and then went to the end of the road festival and did a bugle at midnight in the woods in uh, in a tent in front of people who were maybe not your ideal comedy audience but it's difficult to be an ideal comedy audience at midnight in an open field Uh, and the lights kept flickering off in a very disconcerting way so every time the lights went off and turned on again I felt like everyone was maybe going to be a meter closer it felt like we were going to be attacked but they were lovely. It was lovely. I really enjoyed doing the bugle. I did the um, in the bin section for the first time in history. Uh, someone did the in the bin section that wasn't Andy Zaltzman. And if you don't listen to the bugle, that will mean nothing to you. And if you do listen to the bugle, it may mean nothing to you. I don't know whether Chris put it into the edit or not, so I don't know why I'm mentioning it. Oh, yes. Uh, the other news, they, they put up the resistance again on ABC television. Uh, but it is also available on Amazon if you are an Amazon Prime subscriber or if you are not an Amazon Prime subscriber, it is available on my website for download or as a USB stick if you want to have some sort of physical um, version of it. Uh, there's also tea available on my website, tea with Alice Tea with tiny little one-liners on the tabs of the tea bags, which I think is very sweet. And apart from that, I cannot think of any news that I have. I probably do have news, but it's out of out, not in my head so uh, it, there's too much in my head at the moment of, of just clouds, clouds and phlegm. Sorry if phlegm is an upsetting word to you. That's it from me. I will see you next week. Uh, there will be a much more regular uploading schedule now that Edinburgh is finished and now that I have my physical health back in at least functional mode. Uh, so I will talk to you next week. This is the podcast with John Luke Roberts in a field in end of at the end of the road festival you're having tea with Alice goodbye
All right. Hello and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Uh, Tell people who you are and what you've been drinking. Oh, what I've been drinking? Mm. Oh, uh, is this a fictional drink or a real drink? It can be either. I'm John Luke Roberts and I've had two coffees today. Do you like tea? I do like tea, yeah. What's your favourite tea? I generally go classic uh, Yorkshire tea or Yorkshire gold English breakfast Uh, with milk. Well, uh, we are sitting here in the field at End of the Road Festival, and you've just finished up your run at the Edinburgh Fringe, yes. which was very successful. Yes. And now you're going to do a tour? Yes. In the new year, I think. That's exciting. It is exciting. It's a, yeah, it's a relief to do one. Um, Why is it a relief to do a tour? Because I've always sort of aimed at... Uh, Uh, always having a having my job being making live shows to to then perform to people, and I've not really been able to. I've sort of been on the verge of going. Well, maybe I can't do this, and maybe I need to focus on the other parts of my job instead. And so, to be able to do a tour is a good step in the right direction. And actually, to have had this Edinburgh is a good feeling of oh, fine, this is the right thing. This will pan out. And what have you been wrestling with recently? Wrestling mm. with in your mind. What have I been wrestling? This is a, it's a very odd time to ask <laughs> because we're just after Edinburgh and there's sort of no time to wrestle with anything in Edinburgh. I guess that actually the main thing is the that kind of battle between um, ego and the sort of essence of of why you're making art. Yeah, it's very difficult when the product you're selling is yourself to distinguish between narcissism and workaholism. Mm-hmm. And also to know what you're doing in the right... But the, but because effectively, to make art is to express something of yourself and to want to communicate. It's just this desperate thing we have for human connection. Mm. And so you make art as, as a way to do that, a way beyond conversation, a way to say, look, this is me. M- hopefully that we can meet somewhere with this. And obviously there's already something reasonably narcissistic about performance because it's this is me and you've got to sit there and listen Mm. but I think you can still touch people that way and you can still do it but there's within that there's already the tension because the expressing yourself is fantastic Uh, the communication is also an essential part of it and it's a slightly different part because to express yourself and not be understood is sort of fine but to be understood you need to make some compromises with yourself and so it's how can you best express yourself in a language other people understand. The difference between what you say and what people hear exactly, can be yeah. astonishing. Yeah. If you've ever had someone come up to you after a show and say that joke, and you go, but this is not what it's about. This It's not Absolutely. at all about... And so many different... Yeah, and with this last show, actually. Um, and I built the show so it could work sort of... There's a manifesto in the show, uh, sort of my genuine belief in why absurdism is, is pointful um, and why art that doesn't make sense is good and the show is genuinely that manifesto it's a way of putting that forward but it's also a stupid hour of comedy and I wanted to build it so people can leave thinking well, that was very very funny and take nothing else from it or people could go oh that's something worth thinking about that's an interesting point um, but I was surprised how many people missed the second part because I, I keep making these shows and, and literally spelling it out and speaking directly to an audience what I'm trying to say because I figure well what's the point in obfuscating that and still a lot of people, and a lot of reviews where you would expect perhaps a higher level of, well, you, actually I wouldn't expect a higher level of close reading, but you would hope there to be. Yeah. Miss it entirely, which I think is 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 interesting. There is Given just that you explicitly say this is what the show is yeah, about. Yeah, explicitly. But I, I think it's the same in conversation too. Language is only, is a blunt tool. That's also partly what the show is about. We can't really communicate. We can never really communicate. We just kind of, it's like we're running with baseball bats trying to sew something and you can maybe get a bit of the thread through, but it's not. <laughs> which is one of the reasons why I think art is a good way to communicate because it is by definition, imprecise. Because it's artistic, mm-hmm. it's interpretive, there is this layer of art between truth and reality. Sorry, bet- between truth and understanding. Uh, yeah. And uh, it is explicit. Whereas yeah. language, if you pretend that language is precise, mm-hmm. it's not, it's gestural. It sort of points you yeah. in the right direction of an idea. Yeah. And it's not, like learning another language sometimes teaches you that. and. Trying to communicate things very clearly sometimes teaches you that language is a very blunt in- instrument. Yeah, I mean, you see it with Trump, don't you? Like the 
he never finishes a sentence. He doesn't really say anything, but everyone who listens to him hears a different thing, or more specifically, his supporters hear everything they want to hear and, and don't hear everything they wouldn't want to. Yeah, he's a master of the ellipsis, it's which is the finish yeah. the, the happily ever after at the end of a sentence of just you fill it in, whatever happily yeah. ever after is to you is what I am for as a politician. Yeah, I didn't mean to jump to Trump. Um, it's all right. <laughs> Everything all seems to be... This is one of the things I've been wrestling with recently is that it's one of the things that comes up with feminism as well mm -hmm. of, of, of how, how do you discuss things that are problems without getting boring about them. And in your job, uh, being boring is not being funny. Yes. Yeah. If you're predictable or if, mm -hmm. if people n can see where you're going with something or mm -hmm. if they can box you in, I've always strongly resisted kind of any labels for my comedy. Which is a terrible marketing idea. <laughs> it's also the difficulty, because you have an audience in the room and every audience member comes with different expectations, every type of audience will come, and with something dealing with issues like sexual harassment or whatever it is, where is this audience already that I can take them down the road I want to take them? Yeah. You know, how far are they leaning one way or another? How much do I need to make them think that this is actually a problem? Or are they the already other way, that they're so side, already yeah. on my side that to bring it into the room becomes problematic in its own way? Yeah. I remember somebody came to ACMS. I, I, I still don't think the routine was really very good. But we, some, <laughs> somebody pulled, years ago, somebody pulled out and got a replacement in. And uh, I should sort of have known, this replacement was totally unfit. For, he just wasn't the right person for the gig. And he's doing this very clubby set. So ACMS is the Alternative, alternative Comedy Memorial Society. has been running for? Seven years. I think seven years. And it's explicitly for weird, mm. unusual, out there, experimental? Yeah. Uh, it's for it's f yeah it's for comedians to try things that might not work. It's to it's for things which wouldn't basically it's for things which wouldn't necessarily work in a a normal stand up club, mm. and an emphasis on trying different things out with comedy rather than things that would work there. But um, it's also it's obviously uh, you know expectedly turns into quite a kind of liberal safe space, um, which I'm very keen on. <laughs> but somebody brought this routine in about um, I think it was a, a routine about rape. Um, and I saw what he was doing with it was to take a rowdy comedy club audience to a point of, it was an anti-rape routine, but the fact was what he'd done was just bring this subject into a room of people who were already way beyond where he wanted to take them, and it was, it was deeply unpleasant yeah. that it happened. Uh, and that, yeah, that, that's... That I, think is a, uh, that I think is a delicate thing to do, and one of the biggest issues of our mm -hmm. current discourse, which is that there are some people who are having arguments that are so far beyond where other people are having arguments mm. that they resent being asked to step back yeah. and look at the fundamental... Yeah, that makes uh, sense. You know, I resent a situation where someone will say, you know, something that years and years ago I would have dealt with and gotten mm. through, you know, women as funny as men or whatever it happens oh to yeah. be. Something, something really... It's it's you know, uh, like grade one. Yeah, grade one yeah. of of or like was the Jews something you know something like that where yeah. you just go. Oh, do I have to? Do I have to talk about this? And well, I suppose it's because you've got so far down this level of discourse and you're like, well, we sorted that. Ah, right, that's understood. We're all generally agreed on that. Ah, that's understood. And then to go back, oh, right, you're we're not all on the same page. I have to go back, back to the beginning to get to this level of sophistication that I'm at now. But then equally, the people who are these kind of sophisticates yeah. refusing to have those conversations Absolutely. is Absolutely. A, also, an, yeah, and, also and a terrible it's idea. Not, it's not just true of social concerns and you know basic morality. It's also true of all... Arts. There's nothing worse than watching a dance piece which is speaking only to itself. Yeah. You know, which is so far down that you go, well, I don't, I don't, I don't watch enough dance to even understand how you think this is about borders, as you say it is in the program notes, and I, I resent having to come that far with you, as I'm sure you resent having to try and dumb what you do down for me to understand it. Yeah, which is one of the reasons I enjoyed your show because you have this, you know, very, very esoteric, absurdist style and then you do go back and pick people up and you bring... I, that was a choice. I, I, I didn't realise you'd seen it. Um, yeah, there I brought was my dad. Oh, yes, of course you did. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Okay, yes. Um, there was that... Um, I got into a habit, and I think it's kind of the comedy I was brought up on, of there was this period of time not that long ago where to be alternative meant to be exclusive. And there was this tr kind of, uh, a lot of stuff was done very low energy, very kind of haughty, very snooty. If you didn't get the joke, it was your problem. 
And yeah. so there's a kind of Emperor's New Clothes factor that. And that, there was a that always annoyed me because alternative comedy does not exist without mainstream comedy. Oh, and you and, need and to not have even that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's not just about rejecting the mainstream and all the rest of it. But then sort of realised, wait. And then it was kind of the plan with ACMS is to let everyone on board who wants to come on board. You can't make everyone find it funny, but you can do it in a generous enough way, in an open enough way to say, look, this is here for you. If you want this, you can come on board. Mm. Um, not to scare people away or to, and I think it's born of fear, um, that kind of dislike if, of, of a fear of an audience, really. The kind of, a, well, if you don't like this, uh, why? if I can make this a problem with you rather than a problem with what I'm doing, then that's, that makes life easier for me. Yeah, that makes classic me easier to cope with myself. teenage rebellion yeah. of saying, if you don't like me, I never liked you in the first place. <laughs> I'm going to be so unlikable that you can never like me. <laughs> yeah, and I even found this year, um, <laughs> there was one day, it was a Saturday, the first sort of Saturday in the middle, and I came out and I said, basically, th there's this opening silly number which runs up to me saying the title of the show, and I say the title of the show, and I throw my arms up in the air, and everyone claps because that's automatically the response. And this one day they didn't clap. And to be faced kind of with, oh, God, that's your energy. It happened two more times in the run, but I dealt with a lot better. But that time, it, I, I, it was so, the show was still quite new to me. Um, I resented this energy, and I resented the audience. And so I just rattled through the show and realized, of course, what I should have done is gone further to them, lean into them more, be kind to them, play more. Because I stopped playing because I thought, oh, well, you don't like me. I'll just carry on. And I, there was a thing Zoe Coombs-Ma, I think, said on Comedians Comedian podcast about she always thinks of the audience as her partner. So she always loves them. But just sometimes, if they're not really on board, it's like, oh, you're in a weird mood today. Oh, but I'll treat you like my... And that actually helps fix that problem. Yeah, I had, I had exactly that. The day I had three reviewers in, unfortunately Ugh. for me. But, uh, yeah, it was just one of those days where they were not on board early in the run and... I didn't deal with it well because... And it's hard early, isn't it? Because you, you've not yet kind of got the, the rhythm into the show to kind of know how you can... And you're not certain of it either. Exactly. And the moment the moment you tell a joke that doesn't work, the thing is not like, oh, that joke doesn't work. It's like, I don't work. Yeah, and, and, but there's also the feeling, isn't there, like, oh, no, those, those six audiences I've already had, they were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> These ones are right. In fact, I have never been funny. I've been lied yeah, to for yeah, years. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a thing that I don't normally have because I wasn't funny. I was never funny, and I became funny through effort. Well, so I'm really? normally quite comfortable in my performance because I know how hard I work to get as funny right. as I am. That's interesting. Yeah, I've never been. I'm not one of those people who has funny bones, and I'm not a natural clown. I'm a tension breaker mm -hmm. by, you know, inclination. So I've always been sort of witty or been able to, you know, figure out a way out of a difficult situation, which. I don't, you know, I, I assume my listener already knows kind of the thing of just having a mum who was sick for many years. Mm -hmm. you, that's a survival skill is being able to make something horrendous, yeah, less yeah. horrendous yeah. for everyone. Yeah. But yeah, no, I was never like the class clown or anything like that. I never did that. I just thought I would like to be funny. When did you start? <laughs> uh, at university. Right. I went and saw a 24-hour improvised show. And there were some very funny people in it at that time who then went on to be, you know, big deals and so on and so forth. But I, it was like two o'clock in the morning sitting in this tiny room, the Settler Theatre at Sydney University, and they were so funny. And I mm. thought, I would like to be that funny. And you'd take a slip of paper, it was a voluntary thing, and you could go on and play a character or have an objective in the scene, improvised. And I went on and was humiliatingly bad, just just that thing where your face is buzzing with shame. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, this is not something I'm good at. I'd like to be good at it. So you went to fix it. So I was very bad for a long time. D can I ask you, did you learn to... What, what training did you do? Like, was it stand-up? Was it improv you were doing? Or? I started with improv at Sydney Uni. They had Manning Bar Theatre Sports at Thursday at 1pm every Thursday in front of 200 people, which is an incredible privilege to start there mm -hmm. you know i didn't realize until i started doing stand-up how often your first 10 years yes, are yeah. in dingy bars it's so unfair isn't it that when you're at your very worst at the beginning before you know how to do anything you're playing to the hardest possible audiences to play with which are five six two people yeah. you know other and then comedians when you're good at it you're playing to rooms of 500 who any idiot can play to <laughs> 
Yeah, I think it's one <laughs> of the biggest reasons why as people get more famous, they tend to get less good yeah, because, because in a room of a thousand people, laughter will catch on. Mm-hmm. You only need a certain segment of the audience to That's it. A niche joke it. is still, oh, well, that that's 50 people got that. And so that's enough for other people to go, oh, I get that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so that I started with theatre sports and then just did it because I wanted to get better at it and because my friends were doing it. And then I went into the university reviews and then I started stand-up years later, which was a, a, a bonus. At that time, there was still very much... Like, even in the reviews, there was a joke, but it wasn't a joke of no fat chicks, no ugly chicks. Right. And I had, up until very recently, been a fat chick and a very unpopular chick. So it was a very uncomfortable place to start. Uh, But by the time I started doing stand-up, I already knew how to hold a mic. I knew how to write a joke. I knew how to deal with an audience. Mm -hmm. And so I I had a little bit of an advantage in that, what at the time was quite an unwelcoming open mic scene. In Australia? In Australia and New York uh, was where I started doing stand-up. Is it the feeling of shame thing is um, interesting because I've, I've sort of done clown training and through that, it's a different route because you effectively learn to be happy with that feeling of shame. You find the pleasure in it oh, through clown. You like, it, the idiocy is kind of the, it, you find the fun in being embarrassed. Yeah, I can't, I've, I mean, I think I would find that one of the most difficult things in the world. I have too much... Uh, not arrogance, something about the way I was brought up, too, too much of a sense of dignity or mm-hmm. something, maybe it's a sense of something I owe to my family or that thing, which is a very old-fashioned idea. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's one of those things that I fight against in my comedy, just willing, being willing to, because I love silliness. Yeah. I, I really, that's what I loved about sketch was that it gave me an opportunity to be silly in a way that I am not naturally. Yeah, absolutely. Although that's the thing about stand-up too, that certainly when you're taught it, there's so much a feeling of, um, it's all about status. You've got to be confident. You've got to be the most confident, high-status person in the room. It's a terrible place to come from, from com- for comedy. Well, you w- we want to see an idiot making a fool of themselves. But stand-up, we've learned this kind of boxing metaphor that the strongest person in the room wins. And, so there's, and the whole idea that heckling is encouraged and things like that, all these kind of myths about stand-up, lead you to the point where, oh, you've got somebody who's smart, intelligent, smartly dressed, is standing on stage when we should have a fool there instead. We should have a jester and we've got, we've got a businessman or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it is a business now as well. Mm. I mean, I, li- I, like, I like the generosity of comedy. I think that's a... A strong point for me to start with is I quite like making people feel comfortable mm-hmm. and then making them feel very uncomfortable uh, yeah, yeah. and then making them feel comfortable again. That's that's the game for me. That's f- actually, that's a Buffon. That's a bu- Buffon. Um, do you, have you done Buffon stuff? No, I've done no. Well, I've so done no proper training. I did a at co- all. I did a few days with Red Bastard, and the most exciting exercise was it was just that. It was right. Go on stage, make us trust you. Deliberately lose our trust, smash it trick us, win our trust back again, lose it again. How many times can you do that before we don't trust you anymore? Yeah. And of course, you can sort of do it so many times. Yeah. It's extraordinary how much you can win an audience back and then, and keep on winning them back, even though every time you do, you then show them that they were wrong to trust you in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, I think that would be a comforting lesson to learn, particularly in the kind of performance where you walk on stage and they already don't like you mm-hmm. it's one of the things that uh, coming to the uk has been a delight because in australia i come across as a particular kind of person like there's i'm more easily legible oh, okay to an audience than i am here so i get a little bit more leeway well here you're just australian <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean in australia i have hit, hit the ground running really fast like in the first minute i'll have to Right. Get a laugh. What I, what's the type of person you... I sound prissy. Ah, okay. I sound overeducated. Right, okay. Um, and people don't like it. Yeah, that's Yeah, that's what I always found tiresome about stand-up. The having to... The defence mechanism built in at the very beginning. The kind of, oh, look, I know I'm... I sound like this, but don't worry. The unpicking of it 
just becomes a little to have to at the very beginning unpick and make the audience feel comfortable with just the person you are presenting yeah. and the assumptions that they will make about you because of that uh, is what was the theme of my show this year was ethos mm -hmm. the person speaking changes the meaning of something mm -hmm. and who they are to you that you have to give people information about yourself either through words or presentation you mm -hmm. have to come on they know what you are. They need to know who you are. Otherwise, they can't hear anything that you say. Yep. And do, it is do annoying. Do you write for it's other boring. people? Yeah, a little bit. Because I find sometimes that's... The few people I write for, and I go, oh, this is so much fun. I can write things I would never be able to write for myself because it just wouldn't work in my voice. The audience wouldn't want this from me. Why do you think I built a robot? <laughs> <laughs> that's a... Uh, God, that's a great line to just be able to pull out, isn't it? Yep. You could say that to pretty much anything. To pretty, yeah, why do you think I built a robot? Hmm. It was, uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with that idea of just the jokes that I can't say, give them to the robot. Mm -hmm. What are they going to do? Drag him on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Oh, man, I am so exhausted. Yeah. I went after the festival and I walked in the highlands and now I have no voice and I just screamed at people in a glade. Why is it glade, wasn't it? Music <laughs> festival comedy is a very... It's odd, isn't it? ...strange thing. I must say this one's very pleasant. It's a pleasant festival, yes. Yeah, and so you don't get the... I remember doing a festival years ago where the comedy was up against the music it was on in the evenings at the same oh. time as like the big acts and the big acts were quirky like you know f left field alternative acts so anyone who didn't want to go to those and had come to this festival you were just playing to these drunken crowds of people who shouldn't be there in the first place and certainly didn't want the comedy i had to offer <laughs> there's a s there's a festival in australia called splendor in the grass mm -hmm. and uh, they have an ideas tent and it's the first festival comedy i ever did Back in the days, they they wouldn't even pay you. They'd just give you a ticket to the festival and uh, free food, which seemed like a good deal at the time. Free flights to Byron Bay as well, so oh. it's nice. Um, but uh, there was they had this Sunday morning event, which was a secular sermon. One of the best pieces of theatre I ever saw was John Safran giving this secular sermon on guilt. Mm -hmm. He'd just written a um, true crime novel about a murder. And then he ha found this playing on his mind, this idea of what, what it would be like, what it would feel like to have killed somebody and to know what that felt like. Mm -hmm. Put a call out on Facebook. So he stands up on stage. It's Sunday morning, 10 a.m., 200-seat tent with maybe 20 people coming down off various drugs. It's just him on stage and a guitarist playing really discordant music. I don't know if he ever did this anywhere else, but it was still one of the best things I've ever seen in terms of live performance. Mm -hmm. A guy playing this discordant music under him talking about how he put a call out on Facebook for people who had killed someone. Got sort of traditional doctors, nurses, people who'd either euthanized someone or accidentally killed somebody. Then he got a young man messaging him saying, I, I killed a man and I went to jail for it. Um, what had happened was he had been with his girlfriend. This man had abused his girlfriend in the past, confronted them in a shopping centre and he punched the man into a coma, just saw red, blacked out, punched this man into a coma, had just turned 18, so they rushed it through as battery before right. the man died. So he only went to jail for a few years. Right. And now he was out in the community and dealing with this guilt and shame and, you know, what he had done and that he'd murdered someone and that, you know, all of that stuff and how he'd processed it and how he dealt with being back in the community after being in jail and all of these things that John Safran lays out in the conversations he has with this man over messenger and then he tries to arrange to meet him for coffee and he meets him and they, he talks about how the only way he can really get out of his head is to play music and he plays this he just sits in his room and plays music and you realize as Safran is going on with the story that the kid on stage playing the guitar is oh, right. this young man and it just one of those things that puts the hair up the back of your neck. Yeah, wow. And makes and I, it was such a a weird thing to see uh, to see and to hear and to experience in this empty tent, something that is genuinely transcendental art 
with the backbeat of some terrible band in the mm. background. <laughs> but when I see things like that, I'm like, oh yeah, you can actually change the world a little bit. I mean, it doesn't have to be meaningful, but mm. sometimes it can be. Mm-hmm. Are there any gigs like that that you've seen? Or things that have changed your idea of what you can do? Because you're quite classically trained as a clown. Uh, yeah, but only only relatively recently. I'm sorry, I'm going to move out of the sun. Oh. Um, relatively recently. I was thinking the other day of the moments of, like, the proper th- moments of, I guess, uh, coup de théâtre. You know, the moments of, oh, my God, you can do that. Or, oh, what you've just... And I think there's three that stick in my mind. One I saw the other day, <laughs> which is, um, uh, I saw Fun Home at the Young Vic. Have you, it's a, it's a musical, it's a, a, a graphic novel by Alison Bechdel, which I read, I think it must have been shortly after it came out. She who invented the Bechdel Yeah, test. yeah, and it's about her growing up. It's sort of, it's, it's, it's um, a memoir, but it's telling the story of her father who was, uh, was gay and she didn't know and was basically ruining his family's life because he was closeted and it was expressing it in these various uh dangerous ways um and her own coming out and her own <laughs> sort of about her relationship with her father and the points at which they meet and the things they had in common and the lack of being able to talk about it and the rest of it but there was a moment in the um the young vic production of it when um she goes back home after it's sort of hard to describe but, um she goes back home after college with her girlfriend for the first time and they managed to do something with the set which did so many other things but that feeling of coming home and suddenly seeing it almost as a stranger that walking into the room and seeing your house as the house it is rather than the habitat that it's always been the feeling of somebody being the girlfriend coming into this home and seeing it through actual new eyes as well um, along with like a lot of other kind of effectively the first, they, there was quite a shallow stage and you saw the bare wall of the back painted black with the fire exit on it. And the house was sort of musical style. It was the furniture being brought around. The furniture represented the whole thing. And this museum-like furniture, because the father was obsessed with um, keeping this old home looking how it should have done and having the right furniture which he do up to match it. And this all jumping around. And then they brought a white screen down to tell a bit of a story which happened out of town in New York. And when they lifted this white screen to go back into the home as she returned the back wall of what you thought was the back wall of the theatre because they made you think it was had disappeared and there was a realistic the whole first the whole ground floor of the house was there realistically the walls everything everything that had been represented by these tiny elements was suddenly just there and you saw it completely and in that moment the emotional was there with my partner we both just gasped because it was such a yeah They'd done so much with that set, and that set designer had had to um, say, I think this will work, and they'd had to build the whole thing, and it did, and it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, that, that is an interesting thing, because one of the, th- one of the feelings you have when you go home <coughs> is that it is diminished. Mm-hmm. But in fact, you're seeing everything about it, when before you were so familiar with it that you didn't see it at all. Yeah. So much of, and this is one of the things I've realised moving around so much between countries, so much of our lives is habit. Mm-hmm. So much of our mental processes is sort of outsourced to habitual thoughts and habitual movements. Yeah, so you stop seeing things. So you, stop, you absolutely stop mm-hmm. seeing most of the world around mm-hmm. you and you'll notice something has changed sometimes. Have you, uh, do you know the poem Home is So Sad by Philip Larkin? Yes. It, which does I- is exactly the same moment, really, of like, oh, this, this house which used to just be like my cocoon, I now see as this shell of what it used to be, really. Yeah, the other thing that does that is going to places and walking through the streets and realising that everybody lives somewhere. <laughs> that, you know, that you go to some tiny town in the middle of nowhere and you walk through the streets and you realise... There are people who live there and have lives <laughs> yeah. and, and personalities and relationships. and I mean, it sounds solipsistic to say that, that you don't realise that until you see it, but you never feel it. No, that, that, yeah, that's it. You never feel that there are all these individual 
Yeah. Mm. We sort of because you can't comprehend it. <laughs> you know, th there's so many volumes of people living entirely inner lives and all the rest of it. You couldn't possibly hope to comprehend that actually. So as soon as you're exposed to a little bit of it, it's a shock, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and you could sort of deal with it in a small village, but in, uh, even in a big city, you just have to think of everyone else as video game characters, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that they, they can't really be people, because <laughs> otherwise you'd have to engage with them as people, and that would be... Which impossible. is why as comedians with audience makes it so much easier, because they move as a mass rather than... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's they, they have a natural urge to separate themselves from one another, mm -hmm. but you want them to bunch up yeah. so that you can deal with them as a unit. Yeah. And uh, the laughter moves in waves in particular ways. And you go, oh, yeah, this is when the audience does this. This is when the audience, it's a brand new set of brand new people who've never been there before, but you know what they're going to do and you're tricking them into doing it. And you don't <laughs> realise how different they are until you read the audience reviews. Yeah, and, and that's it. And it's always, that's why there's that kind of, oh, you know not everyone in the audience is going to like what you do, of course. And if, if, if they did, then you'd be doing something wrong because you couldn't have a conversation with everyone, you couldn't speak to everyone. So why can you help to communicate in this way? With, But still... A member of the audience not uh, hearing somebody mention they don't like some the, the just shudder of that of, oh you lied to me <laughs> that kind of thing <laughs> wait but I was the wait what have I you thought you yeah. on mass enjoyed me yeah I got uh, an audience review which actually I'm very pleased to say genuinely amused me rather than hurt me mm -hmm. uh, I think that's some sort of progress uh, was I I saw in my reviews section that there were two reviews uh, one after the other one which said this is the best stand-up you will ever see, mm. one of which said this is the worst stand-up you will ever Brilliant. see, and they were from the same night. Yeah. And that made me laugh rather than I gen I, I always have myself. I still have the pain thing, and then I can move to the amused. But it really doesn't matter. There's still that little <coughs> ego, like, attack. I think because of the placement of it. Yeah, that must have helped. Wonderful. St structurally, it made me laugh. But yeah, e yeah even so, that... You know, you write a show, you know it is not for everyone. Savage, particularly. I knew what mm. I was trying to do with that was a very different kind of show um, from ones that I had seen, obviously, in Australia. And then you come to Edinburgh and realise there's so many things that are, you know, things you couldn't even have thought of. But I bumped into a guy and he said, oh, I saw your show years, years and years ago. And I said, oh, did you like it? And he said, it's not really my thing. But it was very good. Right. I was like, how can it not be your thing? It's my yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's my thing. Although, nice to say it was very good. I hate that moment after anyone says to you, oh, I saw your show. Because I'm immediately just going, okay, say the nice thing. <laughs> Don't just, and so, you know, when somebody think, if somebody says, I saw your show, it's like, oh no, there's the threat of. Uh, <laughs> it was very. Or there. even some, oh, I saw your show. And then nothing, nothing at all. And then it never comes to you, oh no, what's. What, what. what? Why, would you, why would you tell me you'd seen it? Would you rather live in a world where people told you the truth? Or where people were nice to you? I'd rather live in a world where they told me the truth and it was all very nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, there are many things that are true at the same time, of course. You can I don't think it's actually, it's not a choice about the world. I would rather, I would aspire to be able to happily live in a world where uh, people tell me the truth and it's fine. Yeah. To not have that that sort of to have my ego in balance rather than have it t to feel like I'm getting my self-worth through my ego and through other people's appreciation or otherwise of me because I think that's very uh, um, well it's, you're never going to get enough basically so it, it's just not it's not workable it's not a s healthy way to be yeah I well it's, it's it's temporally like it can't it's missed yeah, they and fill for, you every up little, for, a second for every and little then ego, like every little feeling of, oh, I feel good because somebody said something nice about me. Well, if somebody says something nasty about me, that means you're going to feel bad, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I try to think about nice things when I... I try to balance those things in quite a mechanical way. If I'll right. read a sad news story, I'll mm -hmm. also do something nice for somebody or mm -hmm. read stories about unlikely animal friendships or whatever it happens <laughs> to be just to because that all of the things are true at the same time yeah. people are horrendously cruel to one another but also ducks make friends with friends with tortoises sometimes and that's great do they yeah oh, I haven't seen oh, those. unlikely animal friendships yeah. look it up does the duck ride on the tortoise no they just sort of uh, kiss beaks ah 
tortoises can be said to have beaks, which I don't think they can. Noses. But they're just I interested in each other. It's like when, when babies meet. I love mm. babies meeting babies. It's one of the great joys of life. <laughs> everyone else in their world is a giant. And then they meet another baby. It's oh very exciting. <laughs> 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 but then equally, you can just think of babies as being too stupid to be mean yet. Oh, and they can still be mean. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think babies can be mean? Toddlers can be mean. Toddlers can be mean. Okay. Can babies be mean? Well, maybe I guess they don't have that intention. No, but they can see upside down faces. That's one well, of the good actually, baby if you, the, if you put the, if you have to be, if you have to intend to be cruel to be cruel. Unintentional cruelty. You can be cruel unintentionally, and so can babies. Babies ruin people's but lives. Are they unaccountable? <laughs> <laughs> are they accountable for that cruelty? Well, no. That, I, mean, I, guess, I guess that's the question. The moral, the moral accountability of babies. There's a PhD in that. There, uh, there is, but it would have to be sort of mentored by a baby, wouldn't it? Otherwise, <laughs> it's <laughs> you need to speak. You need to interview a few, interview a few. I mean, yeah, kids' shows are very interesting because you know. Children aren't stupid. They just don't know anything except the things that they know. It's interesting what they get bored by, too, because kids get sort of bored a lot easier. And I, you know, the club comedy club for kids, which I used to perform at, and sort of realised it just wasn't for me. Like, I chance into it working every now and then, but just don't really have the those skills and certainly don't have the... Uh, wish to, like, to the, the amount of time I'd have to put into learning how to do it I think well, I, I, that's, this isn't a, an aspiration of mine but with my old double act partner and, and girlfriend at the time we um, we do these things which were very repetitive and stupid for adults and adults would love them and the more we'd push it the more they'd enjoy it because this and was idiotic we were acting like children you thought we of it as childish yeah and then we performed it to children and they hated it they were shouting this is boring <laughs> stop it this is boring and it didn't even become in a fun way it was just they did not like this happening because it was boring because they didn't have the understanding that we were boring them on purpose yeah or that this was like oh god I can't believe you're still doing this that's hilarious that's ridiculous why are you putting me through that they couldn't have the pleasure of being put through something it was more no st stop it stop this we, uh, and so that, that was interesting. I mean, how do you, if this is not too personal a question, how did you deal with being in a relationship with someone who you were also creative partners with? Because I have a theory. I may tell you to cut some of this. Well, feel yeah, free, that's fine. Feel I'll, free, I'll, I'll, I will cut whatever. We, effectively. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he realises immediately. Um, so we'll but in ask, terms the of, ask the question again. again. Yeah, All yeah. right. So how... Was it being in a relationship with someone you were in creative partnership with? And I'll tell you why I ask. I have a theory okay. about one of the reasons why most successful ongoing creative partnerships tend to be either uh, homosocial if they're straight mm -hmm. or heterosocial if they are not straight. Okay. Because if you feel that attraction to someone, uh, you are attracted to somebody. Uh -huh. In a creative partnership, it's it's about chemistry as much as it is in a romantic partnership. And if it's somebody who you want to sleep with... I see. It's so much easier to do that than it is to write a sitcom. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I there's see. Yeah, you, yeah. You, there's a desire to create something together. Right. And, and, yep. and it could be channeled either into a relationship or it could be channeled into something productive. <laughs> not to say a relationship is not That's interesting. the highest production possible, but... That's my theory. I don't, I don't have proof of it. It's just a vibe I have. So with that in mind. With that in mind, um, the, it it wasn't very. It made everything. It, it just there was no there was no the real problem was there was nowhere to go. To be spending all your working life and your uh, emotional life with the same person became too hard. We would veto each other far more than in any other writing relationship I've ever had. Um, the, the, the amount of throwing ideas out, going, no, no, that's not good. No, that's not good. Um, there were times when it felt like we'd have arguments about who, who wrote a bit, oh. things like that. It was just very... But it, it, this was not, this was not I'd say, just a problem with the working relationship. But it, all kind of, it just meant there was nowhere to go. We'd have great fun actually performing the shows and the writing process was so desperately 
was so hard. I had this briefly. I was in a band with my twin brother who was a very good musician. And uh, in rehearsals, he was very mean to me right. in a way that he wasn't... He was not a mean brother and he was never mean to any of the other bandmates. And it was that he saw me in some way in that context as an extension of himself. And he was as harsh with me as he was with himself. And it became sort of impossible mm -hmm. because it was his band. There's been times actually uh, with my partner at the moment, who's a performer, a very uh, good one, just did an amazing kid show about... Uh, breaking out of the gender binary for sort of five-year-olds without... Uh, it's a beautiful thing, and effectively they're talking to themselves as a, as a child through this, uh, like, extended sci-fi metaphor. But the kids watching it, loving it, having fun, the, I think they were always worried that the parents would be bridling at it or the rest of it. But anyway, there was a wonderful thing. Um, and there's been sort of moments of... Where to be with this incredibly creative person, it almost feels like to not work with them seems, or to not like invite collaboration or those things, feels hurtful in some way. Yeah. When really it's just I can't do this again. I, I I need to keep these things separate. I mean, and it's also tempting. And then it's also ah, no, it's not. Yeah, because part of what you admire about them is their work. As yeah. And as you say, if it's if your work creatively is an expression of yourself, then how can you not? Mm -hmm. Uh, engage with that in the highest possible way. Yeah, that's a really interesting, a really interesting thing. I've always thought about the people are very binary, even to the point where, when we talk about binary and try to break that down, we go binary and non-binary. Non -binary, yeah, I was thinking that everything breaks into a binary one way or another. And I was wondering whether it's just because of our hands, because we have two hands. Is this simply it? Like yeah. we're used to holding things in. Two halves of a brain. If yeah. we were, if we were octopuses, would we think of things as a yeah, an octonary? Yeah, <laughs> octagonal options. Yeah, opposites. We like opposites. That's interesting. Yeah, like the like, oh, it's opposite day as a kid doing all those things. It's always fun to work out the opposite of someone, something. And of course, when it's fun to say, oh, what's the opposite of the chair? Well, you wouldn't be able to sit on it. Uh, it wouldn't be comfortable, so it'd be spiky, it'd be hard. It would be, uh, so, oh, what's, what is it? It, maybe it'd be, it wouldn't be hard because a, a chair is hard. Maybe it would be so, like liquid. It would be a liquid thing that you couldn't sit on. So there's, see, but it would be painful to, to sit on it. would be mercury or something would possibly be the opposite. It's always fun to do that yeah. and to come up with the exact opposite. And then, of course, it's just an abs it's a reductio ad absurdum. You're using an absurdist tool to show, ah, binaries are stupid. Yeah but you don't realise you're doing it when you're doing it. <laughs> no. And then you lo you forget that lesson almost immediately. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Outside. God, we even take binaries to dogs and cats, don't we? And then, of course, we gender dogs and cats, and dogs yeah, become dogs male and, and cats become and female. Yeah, dogs and cats are yeah. women. Which is, yeah, really, really weird. Uh, and stupid as well, because it's like, you know, they have more in common than anything else. Like, even, even gender, you know, classical men, classical women have more in common with each other than we do with a mouse mm -hmm. or a tree. <laughs> you know, there's, we're not opposites. Yeah. Cambridge yeah. and Oxford are not opposites. No. They are the same thing in different parts of the country. Yeah. Although one is very good and one is very bad. Which one did you go to? Uh, Cambridge. Oh, likewise. <laughs> so you're right. <laughs> my dad always tried to beat up the rivalry between Oxford and Cambridge because my brother was at Oxford. And... Uh, no, it I didn't never, never really existed. It. I, I, it was one of those things, sort of bit of a fun hangover and also so intensely stupid as soon as you even begin to look at it. But then even, you know, you go to Cambridge and you have town versus gown. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the, and the colleges, you have St. John's versus Trinity's. You know, you like... And even the idea that you'd look at Oxford and Cambridge and go, right, these are the two versions of this thing, ignoring all the other sort of um, universities in the country and the, the world. Cambridge and the Cambridge is TAFE? <laughs> 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 yeah. Or... A yeah. puddle? Like yeah. What? yeah, exactly. Trump University, maybe. Mm, maybe. But again, it's the same thing. Yeah. Same category. Trump, uh, oh, Trump uh, Steak. Trump Steakhouse, Trump maybe. Trump Steakhouse yeah. is the opposite that might be of Cambridge it, yeah. University. Um, I've kept you uh, too long slash long enough. Um, where can people find you online? Um, my, I have a website now, I think. 
I know. www.johnlukeroberts.co.uk. And I'm on Twitter as at jlukeroberts. John Luke uh, is spelled... J-O-H-N-L-U-K-E. Yes, because it sounds sort of Frenchy. Yes, and it's not. And it's not French. It's a lie. It's very Anglo. Mm. French being the opposite of English. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's one thing we can agree on. And no, we're the same people. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having tea with me in this field in the middle of nowhere. Thank you for having me. Lousy rifles all, lousy rifles all.